Welcome to the podcast, where we clear up common misconceptions in biology and evolution. And learn that the answers to evolution's mysteries are simple in the way that everything is astoundingly complicated. Welcome to Darwin's Black Book. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Darwin's Black Book, the evolutionary podcast. My name is Tom Land, a zoologist and professional researcher. I'm Rebecca White. I'm a PhD student in evolution and genetics at the University of Exeter. And being episode 10, uh, multiple of five, uh, we are talking about an underrepresented scientist. And considering it was just International Women's Day and Mother's Day, actually, we thought we would choose a rather interesting character, probably from well, the earliest the earliest stretches of, of when science was developing into, into its modern form. Becca, who are we talking about today? So we've got today Maria Sibylla Merian, and she was a naturalist, an entomologist, so someone who works with insects, and a botanical illustrator. And she's rated as being one of the greatest ever botanical artists. And entomological artists. She was... she was a legend. Yeah, her, her art, her paintings, had such a strong influence upon scientific illustration from a time where there were no cameras or anything in the 1600s. Her paintings were really accurate and realistic, and her diagrams of insects were the first ever to depict the different life stages and the chrysalis of so many species, and she drew that on their food plant. Because before this, people believed that a lot of insects uh, came out of mud, just spontaneously formed from mud. Spontaneous generation. Uh, but she noticed that they didn't. They actually had a really interesting development, and she drew that very accurately. And yeah, she's now recognised as one of the best insect and flower scientific illustrators of all time. However, it's only taken 300 years for us to get there but you know we we know about her now uh thank goodness for that so yeah she she really set the bar for natural history illustration and as becca said she included context about a lot of the animals she was studying putting insects flying around the plants and things hunting other things just to really illustrate what the ecosystem was and kind of focusing on the connections that was apparent apparently to her but not so much to many other illustrators at the time when you look at her work you definitely get an impression of the the insect that you're looking at because sometimes she draws them flying sometimes she draws them like landed on a plant sometimes she's one wing out and that had never really been done before so some of the people that she influenced with her work directly influenced in fact was one of them, Sir Hans Sloane, who is famous for his 71,000 specimen collection and all of his books which he wrote, published, as well as collected, that actually formed the basis of the British Museum. Then there's James Pettiver, a preeminent botanist setting up all sorts of botanical clubs, trading societies across London and most of the British Empire. What's a botanical club? Like a plant club? Old-timey plant I club? I imagined it as a bar where people drink gin and talk about plants old-timey plant club old-timey plant club i think they should bring them back mm -hmm. it sounds incredible i love that and finally also inspiring carl linnaeus 
who was famous at the time for actually developing the binomial system of classification. Well, when a species, for example, has the name of Homo sapiens, us, Homo being the genus, sapiens being the species, well, he developed that entire classification system. And and Marion's work was actually a massive basis for a lot of his descriptions and a lot of his classifications. And I'll dive into a little bit of that later. And finally, just a really quick interesting point, actually, uh, she was funded by the Royal Society of London for her work and, and her, some of her publications 250 years before they let women in. So they funded her, but she wasn't allowed in. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Wonderful. Right, Becca, take us away. Who was she? When did she live? Where did she live? And what was she doing? That was quite so impressive. So Maria was born on the 2nd of April, 1647. That's 2nd of April, which is coming up pretty soon. I'm looking so... just half a month away. Big celebrations planned. So it's going to be her 374th birthday. <gasps> I've never celebrated a 374th birthday before. It's time. Well, she was born in Frankfurt <laughs> in Germany to a Swiss family. Actually, in April 2013, they had a Google Doodle that was made up of her art style to celebrate her birthday. Oh, that's quite cool. That's nifty. Um... Also related to that, she was on the 500 Deutsche Mark banknote from 1991 to 2001 before they moved to the Euro. That's mad. Yeah. Huh. So she has been recognised in recent years. That's, that's Yes, that's good really to, good. Good to hear. Um, but yeah, as we said, she's really well known for her illustrations of plants and insects, made as a result of her trips to the tropical country of Suriname. And Suriname is found on the northeastern coast of South America. She also discovered a bunch of unknown animals and insects inside Suriname. And her classifications of butterflies and moths can still be used today. And she undertook these scientific expeditions at a time where it was pretty unusual and normally only undertaken by men, so kind of rich white men. Several reasons. Number one, they had all the money, owned the plantations in which they could do that, and the ships, and the equipment and the books, and also women weren't allowed to be educated quite a lot of the time. Yeah, I was going to say men would have had the education that allowed them to get on those trips. Exactly. To, to go. But oh. she, she went, and she was 53 when she went. I'll work up towards how she got there to that point in her life. And self-taught. And self-taught. And self-taught. It's impressive. <laughs> but yeah, her discoveries and insights throughout this time have influenced biology today still. And she was the first person ever to record butterfly metamorphosis, so turning from the caterpillar into a cocoon into a butterfly. That was her. Well, it wasn't her. She discovered it first. But it's okay. Don't worry. It's been attributed to two other people, both men. <laughs> we'll get there too. <laughs> one of her principal claims to fame is that she is one of the first naturalists to have studied insects properly. She recorded and illustrated the life cycles of 186 insect species. That's mad. That's mad. The ones that we know of as well. A lot of her works have been lost since. So I want to go through her life story, how she got to do these wonderful things. So... It starts off when she was three years old when her father died. And this was an important part of her life because when she was four, her mother remarried someone called Jacob Merrill. So he became her stepfather and he was a renowned flower and still life painter and he was the one who encouraged her to paint. And at 13, she started to collect insects and raise silkworms, which is, you know, very unladylike for the time. Um, so she did a lot of that in secret. Um, and Frankfurt at this time was a centre for the silk trade, so the silkworm was very, very important to the town in which she lived. And then she started to paint the images of insects and plants that she was becoming obsessed with. Um, 
and all these specimens that she captured. And throughout her life, she kept all these specimens and studied their life cycles. Which is quite interesting because actually when she was undertaking, well, watching insects, it was still known... Well, butterflies and caterpillars were thought to be different animals. So looking at it is quite incredible. And also spontaneous generation, insects specifically, you left out a rotten piece of meat and flies would be born from the meat. This is the level of science, in quotation marks, that we're dealing with in the society. And she is, she is looking at these things and she's actually understanding how they fit together already. Yes, yeah, she actually saw the truth from such a young age just by staring at them. And yes, yeah, she became a bit obsessed. And it was lucky for us that she did. So later on in life, she stated her kind of her aims for doing all these paintings. And she said it was to please both the connoisseurs of art and the amateur naturalists interested in insects and plants, which pretty much sums up her life's work. That is her, her, the dedication to what she was doing. Absolutely. Anyway, back to Jacob Merrill, her stepfather. He recognised the talent of his stepdaughter and really encouraged her. He did go away a lot. So during some of his long absences from Frankfurt, he entrusted the care of Maria to his student called Abraham Mignon. And it was under him that Maria continued her research and she observed how caterpillars pupate and arise out of their cocoons to produce the most beautiful butterflies and moths. And by accident has instantly connected two of the dots, which, yeah, caterpillars are not different animals to butterflies. Mm -hmm. And yeah, she was the first person to document these. And she wrote of that time, I realised that other caterpillars produced beautiful butterflies or moths and that silkworms did the same. This led me to collect all the caterpillars I could find in order to see how they changed. So she also recognised that they weren't exactly the same between species as well. So then skip forward to 1665 when she was aged 18. She got married to another one of her stepfather's students and she had a baby shortly afterwards and that was Joanna. And Joanna became also a really incredible woman. Um, and then during this time as well, Maria continued to paint and she also taught painting and she loved taking specimens from the gardens that surrounded her. Then in 1675, she published her first book, which was a collection of engravings, which in English is called The New Book of Flowers. But what is it in Dutch slash German? I'm going to upset some people. Um, <laughs> Neues Blumenbuch? Yeah. Um, new Book of Flowers. New Book of Flowers. <laughs> and two years later, her second book came out. And this is the wondrous transformation of caterpillars and their remarkable diet of flowers. A catchy, catchy title. Catchy title. Um, Very snazzy. Yeah. And it was in this that that life cycle first appeared. That was the first publication. And three years later, her third collection, she was unstoppable. Mm. Um, and... Just before her third collection, she had her second daughter, Dorothea, who also grew up to be an amazing painter and scientist. So that's two daughters on the go, three books down. Yes. And then another important step. In 1685, she left her husband. She got a divorce in 1685 when as a woman. When women don't get educated and have as many rights... I think have fewer rights than some livestock, so... Um, There's kind of um, conflicting wow. evidence as to why she was able to get that divorce. Uh, some people say it was because her husband was a drunk and unable to provide for the family. And other sources say um, she argued that they had a different faith, so the church let them get divorced. Either way, nicely done. Yeah. Kudos to her. That was 
<laughs> well played. So yeah, one writer, as you say, he was he was a bit of a drunk. One writer did in fact describe her husband as, I quote, mentally and morally outclassed by his wife. Burn on him. That was quite incredible. And because of those reasons, um, Maria, Joanna, and Dorothea moved to a religious commune with Maria's mother. So Joanna and Dorothea's grandmother. So three generations of women all moved to this religious commune. Fantastic powerhouse of... Uh... It sounds pretty fun, to be honest. <laughs> um, and while they were there, they lived in a home owned by Cornelius van Sommelsjik, the governor of Suriname. I do apologise, that was probably pronounced awfully. Sommelsjik. He was the governor of yep, Suriname. Yep, governor of um, Suriname. And they lived in his house. And this enabled her to begin her studies of the tropical flora and fauna of Suriname and South America. So this was her first kind of exposure to the nature and life in those areas of the world. Outside of the gardens of Germany, which had Nuremberg, which she'd actually just been looking at for the last several years. So, yeah. And then due to financial reasons, um, the religious commune um, kind of collapsed a bit. So in 1690, they moved to Amsterdam. Hey. And Maria, Joanna and Dorothea set up a studio painting flowers together. And that's where they created the Caterpillar book, which is quite a well-known one. The three of them created that together. Which is... Studio. Probably a collection of some of her most famous scientific discoveries that still hold true today. So shortly after this, Joanna married a merchant called Jacob Herald, who was involved in trade with the new Dutch colony of Suriname. So that was a great connection, and it was perhaps due to this connection. Joanna's her daughter, right? Yeah, the oldest one. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> And in 1699, the city of Amsterdam sponsored Maria and Dorothea, so her youngest daughter, to go on a trip to Suriname to Whee, see it for themselves. Fantastic. And bear in mind at this time, Maria was in her early 50s and Dorothea was just 21. And it's also the... Wow, that's... So it's a mother and daughter powerhouse. And they spent two years travelling around the areas now known as French, Dutch and British Guyana. And during this time, her work involves sketching plant life and animals and insects that she came across in this part of South America. But in 1701, something started to change. Maria and Dorothea had to return to Amsterdam because Maria had malaria. Um, she started to sell the specimens she collected and kind of sorted out everything that she did while she was away for two years. She began her preparations to produce and publish a collection of engravings about everything she found in Suriname. And between 1701 and 1705, she made 60 copper plate engravings to illustrate the stages of insect development. And these are really beautiful. You can look up pictures of them online. Um, they're kind of arranged around the cultivated and wild plants that she had encountered on her travels over those two years. For those who don't know, copper plate engraving is you carve into copper with acid and then you put ink on it and print it on a piece of paper but to do 60 of them that is an incredibly large amount of work let alone for someone not in the business and and yeah it's genuinely quite impressive then after this time in 1705 she published an illustrated book called metamorphosis insectorum surinamensium which means insect metamorphosis of Suriname. It honestly sounds like a magic book, The Metamorphosis Insectorum Surinamensium. It was published in both Dutch and Latin as well, so if that makes it even more Absolutely magical. Absolutely a magical book, yep. Um, and it's got really detailed text and imagery in it 
The Metamorphosis is the first work ever on the natural history of Suriname. And this book became her most famous work. It contains many figures of tropical plants and animals, which were completely unknown in Europe. And then in 1711, Maria suffered a stroke, which left her paralysed. Despite this, she continued to work for another six years, though. <laughs> she was unstoppable. Yeah. And in 1717, she did unfortunately pass away in her home in Amsterdam. Just after, a collection of her work was published posthumously. And since then, her artwork has become extremely popular and is held by many prestigious collections, including the Royal Collection. Her passion for insects has really changed science forever. But what happened to Dorothea and Joanna? No, what happened to Dorothea and Joanna? I will tell you. So <laughs> Dorothea, her youngest daughter, became a teacher at the Petrus Academy of Science and the curator of the Natural History Collection in Petersburg, the first museum ever in Russia. Okay, that's nuts because, again, that is a daughter of an uneducated woman in the 1600s and she becomes the curator of a collection. That's... She also wow. dedicated a lot of her time to ensure the circulation of her mother's work. She sold the plates of the insects of Suriname to a Dutch publisher who reissued the book in 1719 with 12 extra plates. And some people say that it's actually thanks to Dorothea's continued diligence that Maria's work left such a long-lasting mark on entomology. That is, yeah, keeping, keeping it going. And then Joanna, her oldest daughter. What was she up to? So she'd already started selling her own watercolour paintings of flowers when the three women first moved to, Am to Amsterdam, remember after they left the religious commune? So in 1711, she moved with her husband from Amsterdam to Suriname. She actually moved there herself. Oh, wow. And we think she probably stayed there for the rest of her life. Records of her do kind of get a bit fuzzy after that. Um, but while she was there, she collected reptiles, fish and insects, and she sold them to collectors in Europe. And she also studied and painted insects and plants. Interestingly, though, hmm. when Maria became sick, Joanna came back to Amsterdam for a little while. And that's where she painted under her mother's name. And lots of these paintings, plus other paintings by Dorothea as well, appear in posthumous publications under the name of their mother, without any attribution to the daughters. And there are some people today going through these works again and trying to look at the little subtle differences in style to find out who actually painted each painting. Because also, one person painting that many thing, animals in such detail, that is a huge feat, so it's understandable that they would have they absolutely helped out as well. But that's happened all throughout history. I mean, Leonardo da Vinci, a lot of paintings are attributed to him. But again, if you look at the subtle details, it turns out that actually one or two of them were probably from his students under his name because the student signed it. They, they're being taught by, by the master and therefore they, they signed it by the master's name. Mm, interesting. Anyway, we've gone into art now. Um, <laughs> let's talk about what impact this had on science today. So I'm going to have a little look and a quick tour around her science, the main themes of what she found out, some of the criticism that got thrown at her, especially quite recently, and her lasting legacy and what we can thank her for today. So at the basic level, she was a watcher of insects, <laughs> an insect breeder, and a proponent of the larger picture in science. She subtly introduced the idea that basically you can look at an animal all you want but you will never understand the animal 
until you put it in its environment and look at all of its connections and to the plants and other animals and, and birds and insects. So she kind of suggested the first kind of in situ study, you know, actively making sure it's That's in exactly their what environment. She did. That's, that is exactly what she did. And yeah, she really was one of the first proponents of, of this idea because everyone else had a well, they, they were describing the anatomy and the behaviour of a single insect, for example, in a dish and saw what that did, which there's nothing for its natural history. And a lot of people who do do that now, those lab experiments, people are very aware that it can be different from the environment and there are comparisons that can be made, um, especially in medicine. I think we've talked about this before, haven't we? Where doing an experiment in a dish isn't representative of how that's going to be in nature. Watching a cockroach on a plate is not going to do much compared to watching a cockroach in a tree. Yeah, unless you want that controlled environment, which it can be very useful. So it depends what your goal is, but both of these are very important things to consider. And she was clearly very aware of that. Indeed, yes. So the main themes with what she was looking at, I mean, her scenes of what she was painting and drawing and studying were ecosystems about 150, 200 years before that word was actually coined. But if you look at her work, it was a bird eating tarantula taking down a bird oh, on a I plant. I saw that one, the bird it's eating tarantula. It's kind of grim, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and things, uh, what she referred to as, I mean, the forest rat, what we now refer to as the opossum, actually part of the genus of Didelphimorphia, with all the babies sitting on the back of the mother, running along bushes and branches which that animal lived in. Just by looking at that image, you can instantly tell what it is, what where it lives and actually what it eats. As a side note, this shows what a good field biologist should be. Due to her drawings and descriptions, despite not knowing the name because she didn't label any of her animals, we can actually work out what that animal was. Is that where some of her drawings are ID'd now? In museums? Almost all of them. She didn't attach Down to names. the species. Down to the species, which I think is absolutely incredible. I mean, she got the habits and behaviours of the praying, the male praying mantis, part of the genus Stagmatoptera, and when he was attempting to woo a female in the tree in which she found them, and she painted all of that, plus the ants which were surrounding them at the time. And, astoundingly, it just hadn't been done before. It's vital for further study when you get back to your country where you turned up from in Europe to study these things, but this art of the entire ecosystem allowed this further study. And as you said, Becca, as well, she showed the life cycles all in one image. She showed the food plant, the egg, the pupa, the larva, the caterpillar, and then the adult butterfly all in a single image. So it joined this species together, its entire life cycle together. Yes, they were actually part of the same species. Yes, they were the same animal. And also, no, they didn't turn up from just a flower full of <laughs> meadows. Lo and behold, yeah. butterflies have appeared. Yeah, the 17th century scholars were a smidge off on that regard. These flowers across her paintings were also cross-referenced back at the time. You could see how many species lived off a single species of plant over in South America. You could see all of the life stages, what it ate, fruit, nectar, if it pierced to the stem of a plant or not. This was a really, really in-depth study on, on insects. Her work was not only utilised by Linnaeus and his contemporaries to describe species, but actually her paintings were the type specimens 
she didn't have the actual animal, but she had painted them. So Linnaeus named hundreds of species based on her work. But it's actually been only in the last 20 years has she been awarded the title of naturalist, as opposed to just purely being an illustrator for her study books. The Russian Academy of Sciences owns most of her original work. I'll get into reasoning in a minute. But looking at that in the 90s, we can actually understand the process of how she thought without knowing all of the identifications of these animals. And actually, the the behavioural notes that she made were quite incredible. This is also, bearing in mind, that her art has also reached Buckingham Palace and the Rembrandt House Museum in, in Amsterdam. Her work is everywhere. So, I mentioned her study book. This was the record of her thoughts and her artistic process, as it were. But in it, we can see how she measured the time of gestation from cocoon to butterfly. So yeah, in her work, she was pushing away from the still lifestyle of painting that her stepfather taught her, that you mentioned, Becca. And she kind of came back to, again, the larger picture, but she incorporated weather and the plants and other insects. Connectedness. It was all about the connectedness. <laughs> it's very important. It's very important. <laughs> so yeah, her Suriname books were the largest and prettiest, but it doesn't have the detail of the European books. I think that's where she really, really shines, where she shows that she raised every species that she wrote and drew about five years before putting pen to paper about them. Oh, I didn't know that. She kept them for five years. Before five she... years, raising them, looking at them, studying them, Gosh. and then she started writing about them. In Suriname, she had some issues, considering that most of the insects were 45 foot up in the air, up in the canopy. It was nearly 30 to 40 degrees centigrade, and humidity <laughs> was nearly 100. I believe that she had a quote in one of her notebooks saying how the heat almost killed her and she wanted to go home. <laughs> she was 52 and she'd never left Central Europe where it rains constantly. I, I can understand that. Two and years I, is quite impressive then. She was there for the whole two years and she just wanted to go home for because it was too hot. It, oh yeah, exactly. So considering that she was there for the two years in somewhat discomfort, <laughs> some mistakes in her work are entirely, uh, yeah, entirely understandable. For example, in some cases, she mismatched a, a caterpillar to an adult by, like, one colour, so... Oh, oh so I'm, close. Oh, so close. This is completely, <laughs> absolutely unacceptable. Uh, no, she was in incredibly good for the conditions that she was working in. And actually, one of the really interesting bits that she got to work on when she was in Europe, less so in Suriname, was the parasitoids. So a parasitoid, it's a parasite-only in its juvenile stage. So the adult is quite happily going around eating fruit, meat, whatever, but it must lay its eggs in another living organism in order mm. for the eggs to hatch. What's the parasite of a parasite called then? Hyperparasite. You just made that up, didn't I you? Did <laughs> <laughs> I did not. Let's Google it. No, let's Google it right now. Let's Google it right now. Hyperparasite. Oh my God. <laughs> the genuine shock in... <laughs> Okay, well done. <laughs> so that's a parasitoid. And she was the first European to properly study them. Like, properly get to grips with what they were and try and work them out. <laughs> I say European. In 1096, and this is about the time when the Normans 
uh, first finished the first iteration of the Tower of London, the Chinese were mapping the detailed natural history of the parasitoid. Six hundred years before. Y- yes, they before were. Maria. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, at the time we were producing books called, well, monks were producing books called bestiaries, which were a whole lot of fun, need an episode onto themselves, mm. but saying how God punishes ducks and how ducks, <laughs> are, ducks, very, do? ducks are very immoral. Um, they books are were not. great. <laughs> That's the bestiary. They are so much fun. We're going to do an episode on them later. But the Chinese had, had so much detail in their drawings and their natural history books. But... As a European with none of that knowledge, she had so many drawings when she was looking at the gardens of Nuremberg that up to 10% of the plates in her first book, of the caterpillars, all of them had these parasitoids, either an egg on them or there was a fly that actually hatched from a caterpillar and she was very confused what was going on. She was carefully watching these all of the chrysalises opening up and the butterflies coming out and should a fly and or a wasp have come out of that and having killed the caterpillar she she attributed this as to be um it it metamorphosed wrong <laughs> well i mean that's not it's not true it's not moderate. so yeah what would happen the adult fly would go and lay an egg in a caterpillar the little larvae would hatch, it would eat the insides of said caterpillar and would then hatch out of the caterpillar well, and or the chrysalis. It didn't metamorphose right, did it? I, I mean, but she was so close for the time. And considering that these these connections weren't even being made at the time, these connections were not not there uh, in in the science that surrounded her, that she actually didn't know where to go. She had no books to consult that might have told her what they were. She had no one to go and ask because no one had noticed it yet in the surrounding scientific environment. She was sitting on this idea and she didn't really know what to do with them. And a quote actually that she made as to what the real cause of such unusual changes, namely that these two dissimilar animals come from a single kind of caterpillar, whether it is caused by their still incomplete development or otherwise by something evil, as in their case, I have not been able to discover or conceive, but must and should instead leave this to the gentleman's scholars. Oh no! She no, didn't don't do know that. where to go, and she kind of sat on that. So is she talking about the difference between the parasitoid and the actual yeah. morphal butterfly? Yeah. Wow. Well, how would you know the difference, to be honest? That's remarkable that she noticed it in the first place, let alone being able to explain it. That's just... The fact that actually they were two different animals and not the same one. But here she was actually starting to unwind the process of spontaneous generation. She understood that the butterfly came from the caterpillar. She understood that this, quote, caterpillar fly came from a broken caterpillar. (laughs) (laughs) But... This was understanding that, no, these animals do not come from bits of rotten meat or just flowers. As I mentioned earlier, spontaneous generation was becoming less and less viable in her eyes. And the clincher, the thing that I think is really interesting, because she said she was going to leave it for the gentleman scholars. I'm just going to, rooting for her, like, no, don't. (laughs) Go and look this up. Try and find out what's happening. And, to quote her, 
Often I have seen that flies emerge from pupa of caterpillars, and I expect that it is caused by the following observation that I made myself. A fly landed and remained for several hours on a caterpillar that was too about to pupate. From the pupa, more than 50 small flies emerged 14 days after the attack by the fly. These flies had wrinkled wings, which they straightened using their legs before they flew away. So she did kind of figure it out. She figured it out. Oh, she didn't need to leave it to the gentleman. No, and she didn't at all. (laughs) She could do this. She observed the laying of an egg of a fly into a caterpillar and the hatching, recorded it all, as well as the time. And, yeah, this was incredible. So a reason why I think this is particularly impressive for any scientist, let alone a woman having with such the disadvantage placed on her that she did. This was probably 20 years before a bloke named Leuvenhoek kind of described this process in the year 1700. Leuvenhoek, just if you don't know him, he was the first microbiologist. He's known as the father Mm. of microbiology and described parasitoids and their hatching. She got there first. She got there first. Um, It's like she did. Numbers don't lie. And uh, probably a similar time to actually another guy named um, Swamadam in, in with an amazing name, in 1678. He is actually a person that proved that the egg, the pupa and the caterpillar and the butterfly are all the same animal. But she got there. She already knew that. Ten years prior to that. She already knew that. She really knew both of those things. So she got... And and, unfo- and and that discovery is attributed to John Swamandam for the connectiveness. And also the parasitoid bit is, is attributed to the, the father of microbiology, uh, Leuvenhoek. <sighs> One can only sigh. The last really interesting bit of science that she was starting to unravel with the knowledge that she had, well, the knowledge of science at the time was plasticity. Ooh. You can have lots of different kinds of plasticity. You can have behavioural, you can have phenotypic, so what you look like. And it's kind of the range that an individual has within themselves to do things a bit differently, like behave a bit differently, to improve the chances of survival. And it's called adaptive plasticity in that way. And of course, we know this quite well now, but it wasn't, again, we're dealing with people who still thought flies turned out from rotten meat. <laughs> And in Nuremberg, before she went to Suriname, she actually received some caterpillars. Two were completely different colours, yet ate the same plant. And a third was actually a different shape and a different colour to the other two, but still fed on the same food plant. When they hatched, all of the adults were identical. Mm -hmm. And she was confused. What she was looking at was the lappet moth. And what the caterpillars of the lappet moth do, depending on where they live, well, they change colour. Ah. If they live in a woodier environment, they go more brown. If they live on a more rocky environment, they go more bluey-grey. That's what she was looking at. Then, further research in Suriname, she had a similar situation with a butterfly sitting on a hibiscus plant. She was looking at Well, she thought she was looking at several species, but she all put them on the same page because after careful uh, investigation of them, she realised they were quite possibly the same animal, the same species. What she was looking at was the polymorphic species of the Androgeus swallowtail butterfly. 
They're sexually dimorphic, which means males and females are very, very different in their coloration, but also coloration and shape. They have very different lifestyles, both of those, both sexes, and therefore they have different adaptations to the different environments in which they live in. The males being bluer and, and with kind of band of yellow with rounder wings, the females having massive yellow swathes across their uh, across their wings with loads of black and spiky wings. This was so confusing, Linnaeus actually put them in several different species and it took uh, over 150 years to fix the issue. So she was right first and then she was, he made it wrong. He, she basically put them all on the same page. Implying. Imply, and she only put connected. the same species on the same page in terms of, in terms of life cycles. Implying that actually, yeah, she saw them come from one caterpillar. Does this mean that they're the same animal? Again, Linnaeus put them in eight different species, so so much for her work there. But it was so ahead of its time that Alfred Russell Wallace, 150 years later, in 1848, when he went to the Amazon, he saw these animals. He couldn't tell them apart. He thought they were different species as well until he read up on it, read about her, and said his direct quote for Marianne was, she was a distinguished entomologist of her time. Yes, she was. And completely underrepresented. This issue was fixed from all of Linnaeus's mistakes of actually splitting them into eight different species. An entomologist named Wheel in South Africa was out looking for the males of a specific species of swallowtail. Because he could only find females. And then he found an inter the, another species and he could only find males, but no females. And then the penny dropped 150 years after she died. Hang on a minute. They're not eight species. There's actually only three. But they're males and, and females and it's plasticity. But this is what she was really good at. Instead of chopping things up and isolating things in boxes and petri dishes, which is entirely useful in some ways, what she did, she watched. And she was a natural philosopher, for sure, but her art inspired a generation of natural history artists, and she showed how important the animal was in its ecosystem, which I think that was what she developed. That was the science that she, she built. Even today in evolution research, I mean, I'm a lab scientist myself, and... I know how great it is for some motivations and some questions to have the organism you want to look at in front of you in a controlled environment in a lab. But it's also so important to be able to understand its ecology. And this is something that she was really appreciating the difference between for the first time. And that's still kind of questions we ask ourselves today when we're, you know, looking at finding something out. Do I need to have this in a lab or do I need to have this in its natural environment? And she was one of the first people to notice that that makes a big difference. Yeah, and we don't even know if it was on purpose either because a lot of her work has been lost, which is a real shame. Mm. I'd have loved to sit down and have a cup of tea with her, to be perfectly honest. It would have been great. I have questions. So many questions. Again, some of her work more recently, however, has been criticised. In the 19th century, there were a couple of naturalists, uh, Reverend Lansdowne Gilding and Alexander Maclay, specifically. Well, they went through her work, uh, the book of the caterpillar criticized it page by page plate by plate the book of criticism was nearly as long as the book itself wow 
uh, the illustrations were described as, quote, useless, imaginary, and an entomological caricature. She didn't add much text to her books because well, she didn't know the species' names and she felt that the behaviour and and life cycle was well, described in a picture. And actually that was outlasted most of the science of her contemporaries and is most accurate. But again, some people saw this as a medieval approach to things. When she did put an explanation down, it could have been a little dodgy. For example, when she was describing the tarantula... They're covered with hair all over and supplied with sharp teeth in which they give a deep, dangerous bite, at the same time injecting a fluid into the wound. When they fail to find ants, they take small birds from their nest and suck all the blood out. That explains that drawing she did of the beautiful blue bird um, with a tarantula on top of it. A birdie, yeah, a bird-eating tarantula. And she was so, so close. She even explained the kind of injection of, of, of venom with digestive enzymes to break down the bird and then suck up all its insides. But it, she was so close in some aspects, yet mocked so mercilessly in the 19th century. There's even, it, it goes further, in, in 1997, there was an exhibition of her work. And... Well, there's a quote saying how her work should be read as artistic and religious work as opposed to scientific. I mean, she was not, the quote goes, she was not a scholar. She was a painter, an embroideress, a dealer in paints, a teacher, a housewife and a mother. She came from a family of craftsmen, had not studied at a university and knew little Latin. Basically had none of the qualifications required for an author of scientific work counterpoint all of those things she wasn't allowed to do for purely being a woman she was a housewife because she kind of had to be she was a mother because she kind of had to be she didn't have a university education because she wasn't allowed to she knew little latin because she wasn't allowed to be taught exactly so this was in 1997 by a bloke, uh, bloke named hydran ludwig and all of those reasons which she said are entirely true and she still got there but she was self taught but mm. if we also look back at the <laughs> back through history who else well there's a contemporary of hers a dutchman anthony van leeuwenhoek who i mentioned earlier the father of microbiology was self-taught and he didn't go to university ah. living at the same time he was in exactly the same position and he is famous and not exactly given the status of a person who should not be in the scientific world Interesting. <laughs> Double Sanders. <clears throat> anyway. But I do want to raise that hand, small hand in defence, that the additions that were being criticised were were wrong. They weren't her additions. The ones no that, that were in the 19th century, her additions are very, very hard to find. They were poorly translated, the ones they were looking at, and they were miscoloured additions. So the ones they were looking at, sure, they were probably wrong because they weren't the they ones that she did. put into the world. Her original works were either in private collections in Russia. Turns out the reason why there's so much in Russia and the Russian museums is because Peter the Great, the Tsar at the time, was a massive fan of her work, loved the art, loved her writing and bought loads of it. Maybe that's why Dorothea ended up in Russia as a curator of their first museum. Almost definitely. Almost definitely. And that's why so that's much there nice. is still in museums today. The rest of it was bought into private collections across Europe because it was so good and so pricey. And really annoyingly, because literally the Tsar of Russia bought it, millionaires, well, the equivalent of across Europe, was buying up her work. And she died a pauper. Really? She died penniless. She, she was selling her work 
just so it could cover the costs. She struggled sometimes to get it out of there just to cover the costs of just doing another one, of just doing more. Her passion was to just do another one. So, yeah, people may have ripped her off just a little bit for the work that she actually was putting out there as well. I wonder what she would have would have thought if she'd known how much of a difference her work would make. She laid the foundations, as you say, for so much. Now, and also what she did, she provided some anthropological studies which we use today. A lot of the Suriname information which she used was made possible by local knowledge. She wasn't too proud to ask the locals. All the men at the time, coming from the Dutch East India Trading Company, were too proud to ask yeah. the barbarians. They thought they were too good to talk and... Yeah, yeah exactly. She wasn't. She sat down with the enslaved local tribespeople, because the Dutch East India Company enslaved everyone, um, working on the sugar plantations, but she asked them what animals fed on what. What did the ants eat? What did what was pollinated by what? She asked them and she understood and she listened. I read somewhere as well that the um some of the men that were already over there when she tried to ask them for help to other people that had come mm. along with the Dutch East India Company and the European people, she tried to ask them for help at the beginning. Um and they basically were like, Why do you care? If you don't care about sugar, why are you here? All there is here is sugar. Sugar and barbarians. There's nothing else here of interest. Which is just so... It... So that's why she stopped talking to them and she's like, I'm just going to ask people who are from here. The, the turns out they knew slightly more. A bit more than just sugar, it turns out. <laughs> exactly. And also she provided in her notes, she was absolutely brutally honest with what she saw, absolutely anti-slavery, and provided some of the earliest accounts of life in Suriname as a native, as a local. Ah. So actually respecting the traditions and the language and everything that she saw there, which I think is just fantastic. Really it, getting it, involved it, in the yeah. culture as well as the, the nature. Seeing them for who they were. So, finally, her legacy today. So she died in... 1717-ish, penniless, but what she left behind was, well, a new subject of entomology. She really just turned it around. She provided accurate notes and illustrations to, well, basically, the people who were the scientific powerhouses at the time, furthering research that would help describe what ecosystems were, and 150 years later, inspire works that Charles Darwin would use to help put the theory of evolution to paper, and inspired him and his works. Directly from her, Linnaeus named over 100 new species, all attributed to him, of course. Sigh. <sighs> and since she died, we know in modern science, six plants, nine butterflies, two bugs, one spider and a lizard have all been named after her. What a collection. What a collection indeed. I mean, I read out a list of some of the most famous people she's inspired, but the echoes of her style of the art and the descriptions of nature have been seen in several major natural historian illustrators since her time, including a guy named John James Audubon, an incredible ornithologist who made the book called Birds of America, which is the most expensive book in the world today. Hand-drawn, hand-painted, life-size uh, book on birds. And she kind of laid the foundation for, for him to do that kind of his work. His work, his early works, were an animal, a bird, in isolation. Look at his later works, when he's mm. been through training, it's in an ecosystem because he's learned, apparently, from the best. 
from Maria. Exactly. It wasn't a new field in natural history art by any means, but she introduced a new light to it. And her work could be studied with theories at the time because of the accuracy of her paintings and the ecosystem in which she illustrated. And behaviours could be deduced from it, as opposed to just being a colourful picture for a book. And it's still applicable even decades after she died, which is absolutely fantastic. And just to finish off, from Kim Todd's book, Chrysalis, I quote, From Darwin, before Humboldt, before Audubon, Maria Sibylla Marion sailed from Europe to the New World on a voyage of scientific discovery. She lived from 1647 to 1717. She was an early investigator of parasitoids, of plants, of insects, of phenotypic plasticity. And frankly, she was quite incredible. One of my new favourite people. Exactly. Also, I got a lot of this um, from a really awesome paper detailing her history by Kim Todd, who wrote the book. It was entitled... Maria Sibylla Marian, An Early Investigation into Parasitoids and Phenotypic Plasticity, published in 2011. We have included a link on our website to that. Honestly, just learning about her, it shows how much more we have to learn about quite a lot of people who have done quite a lot of for the subject who are very much forgotten. Yeah, who, who else has done really big things that have contributed in this way that we don't know about yet? Exactly. Time for Animal of the Episode. I feel like we need a jingle rather than you just yelling. No, I love saying that that way. So, so far on Animal of the Episode, Becca, you have won three. I have. I've won three. And the draw has also won three. The results of last time between the desert kangaroo rat, the animal that went extinct twice... And yes. the Tasmanian lion, the killing machine extraordinaire. And those are both extinct marsupials, because the episode was about the Tasmanian tiger, a very famous extinct marsupial. I can confirm that the marsupial lion won. Oh, you're one. By 71%. Wow. Yeah, I really so like Tasmanian very, lion. You really, really like Tasmanian For those lions. people who voted for the desert kangaroo rat, I'm with you. As we all know, who is the <clears throat> better animal out of That's those two? That's not what this <laughs> segment is I for. I am joking. Anyway. Of course. I am joking. So, Becca, what have you got? What is your animal of the episode? So, I have chosen one that Maria drew herself. It's one that you actually mentioned earlier. It's That's a species fantastic. of praying mantis, Stagmatoptera precaria. And this is one of the ones that is credited with Linnaeus in 1753. So that's about 40 years after she drew them. So really, she discovered it, not him. You know? Just saying. Just saying. Just um, saying. Anyway, so praying mantises get their name from their prominent front legs, which are bent and held together at an angle that kind of looks like they're praying. Um, and they're generally found in warmer regions, particularly tropical and subtropical latitudes. Most species, of course, found in the rainforest. Although others can be found in deserts and grasslands and meadowlands. I saw my first one in Spain and um, I found that really exciting because, as a side note, when I was younger I had um, insects top trumps, you know, top trumps oh, games. so good. And the praying mantis would just win so much and I loved having that card. So when I saw one for the first time. Incredible animals. Yeah, and um, yeah, Maria was the first person to describe this species, which is really cool. 
So these guys, they're insects. They're formidable predators. They have triangular heads poised on a quite a long neck, which is actually their thorax, just evolved to be elongated. So what looks like their neck isn't actually their neck. Um, and they can turn their heads 180 degrees to scan their surroundings with two large compound eyes and three other extra simple eyes located between them. They have five eyes. Didn't know that. Of two different types. That's cool. That is really cool. They eat moths, crickets, grasshoppers, flies, other insects. They can disguise themselves. Other praying themselves. mantises. As I say, they disguise themselves as flowers, as orchids, as leaves, as burnt leaves. There's one that looks like a burnt leaf. Ooh. That's amazing. Fashion. Fashion. Um, and when they have babies, the babies literally look like tiny versions of the adults, which I think is quite cool. Um, but anyway, Aspercaria specifically, this species that Maria described, the adults are about three inches long and they're a really bright greeny yellow colour. And we can assume that Maria saw these in Suriname. They have two sets of wings, which are mostly transparent, apart from the top of the first set of wings, which are bright green as well, which have two brown eye shapes on them. If they needed any more eyes, right? <laughs> um, but these aren't real eyes, they just look like them. And this could be as a protection method, so they look like big, scary brown eyes to put off a predator like a bird. And that's Aspercaria, the praying mantis, described by Maria, credited to Linnaeus. So my one, well, very, very different to the marsupial line last week. I feel like I might have shot myself in the foot this week, just a little Ooh, bit. Was it a risk? It high is. Risk, a, it's a high risk, and it could be awful. Right. So I'm going to do Compsilura consinata. It's a good name. It belongs to the Tachinid fly family. Okay. Earlier, I mentioned how she was looking at the tiger moth, the garden tiger moth of Europe, and how she saw a broken. Caterpillar when a fly came out of it. This is the fly. This is the fly. Oh, this is most likely the fly <laughs> what that she illustrated on the plate. And yeah, it is the most likely candidate for what she saw at the time. Plate five of the book Erucarum Ortus, seventeen seventeen, just in case you're interested. And it's a parasitoid of the garden tiger moth. Now I was almost tempted to do this moss because the caterpillars are massive and really furry and they're nicknamed the woolly bear caterpillar. <laughs> they're quite cool because they hatch late summer, then they overwinter and turn into butterflies the next summer. But they overwinter by freezing themselves solid. Well, that's cool. They're nuts. They're not your animal, the episode. No, no, you see, this is why it was interesting because the flies do something incredible. I think they are a feat of evolutionary perfection in terms of a parasite. So, parasitoids, as I mentioned, they need to lay their eggs in an organism to reproduce successfully, be it plant or animal. So the female of Compsilura will find a suitable caterpillar of, of, of this moth just before winter sets in, her offspring overwinter in the moth uh. caterpillar itself. But what she does, so she finds a caterpillar and she sits on it and she checks it out. And if it's a suitable host, she will hook onto said host with three hooks on her butt and then inject an egg or several into the caterpillar itself. Now, this is the cool bit. Okay. Bear with me, bear with me, because I feel like many people are about to turn off. This tiny hatched larva now sitting in a warm and snuggly inside a caterpillar, it navigates on its own to the midgut of this caterpillar and it determines what stage the caterpillar is at, how large it is, how much food it will have for itself, 
how much food this caterpillar will provide for this tiny little larva. It will work all of this out and then it will calculate, well, in, by, by instinct I am assuming, how long and how quickly it should grow inside ah. the caterpillar. It navigates to the most, uh, the place in the caterpillar where it will kill it slowest. Therefore, m more food for the larva of this tiny fly. And then it goes through three stages of life in the next 10 to 17 days. But as I said, 10 to 17 days, it alters the length of its life cycle in the caterpillar, depending on how big that caterpillar is. It's got a flexible life cycle. That Plasticity. is It's incredibly rare for an insect. And I thought it was really great. It brings together the parasitoid research she was looking at. It brings together the plasticity research that she was doing. <laughs> And two of the species. And two of the species that okay. she's looking at. Okay. Yeah. I see what you did there. <laughs> it was good. Yeah, I thought it was quite a good move. And then it hatches. It forms a little tiny red puparium on the outside, hanging off the now dead caterpillar, and then hatches into a fly. It is not a pretty fly. It is brown and pretty, pretty rank Just looking. Fly, I'm not going to really. lie. But <laughs> the... The biomechanics behind its gestation and the hatching and its navigation inside the cat. I yes, I I can't explain how cool this tiny little animal is. Well, there you have it: the praying mantis and the parasitoid fly. You can vote for your favourite on either Facebook or Twitter. Your choice. You can find us on Twitter at Darwin Blackbook, on Facebook at Darwin's Blackbook, and now also on Instagram at Darwin's Blackbook as well. You can follow us there. You can also find us on Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts, and many other podcast players. Thank you to the British Ecological Society for supporting the development of this podcast. You can find them and join the society at britishecologicalsociety.org. For more information on the podcast, you can go to bit.ly forward slash Darwin's Black Book. And for more information about me, you can go to tomland.co.uk. But thank you so much for listening, and I will leave you on this quote. Maria Sibylla Merian, while watching pupas for hours on end, waiting for a beautiful butterfly or moth to appear, as only some small flies came out, she noted in her notebook, I quote, Patience is a very beneficial little herb. Love it. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.